Welcome to the Marxist Think Tank podcast, an attempt to look at the world from a class-conscious perspective and to build. Um, that we call bullets. And this is how you um, check the size of the ammunition, whether it is compatible to the chamber of the firearm that you're mm. carrying. Mm. Um, this is how you shoot. This is how you look for a target. Um, and that would have been done after extensive political education mm. uh, had been given to you because um, it may be that there is a violent situation, but the ANC is not responsible for training thugs. trade unions before it and that would be our only survival here in this country the only force the only power that we have is our hands will there ever be one man one vote in south africa no isn't that why you are almost certain to be faced with a bloody war no but there's no there's not one man one vote anywhere in but africa will there be one man one vote certainly that is inevitable. There will be a one man, one vote in this country, and there will be a majority government in this country. But that majority government will accommodate everybody. Led by Mandela. A giant has risen, and this giant is going to confront all and sundry who seek and want to stand in his way. We were called at the street commits. We have been told that we mustn't pay the rent. This rent is too high for us. Look, I've got five children. And these houses were not even plastered. We've plastered them for ourselves. I am prepared to release Mr. Mandela if he would say that he rejects violence as a means to reach and to achieve political ends. I've been lenient and patient. Don't push us too far. shall run a risk of being a wasted land. Must the cost be so high? 
The African National Congress commands and edges all of us to act for unity and as one. Let this be the year of the most powerful offensive regime and Okay, that's back on there, Fred. Yes, so uh, we're with Fred today, Fred Mokoko. Fred, yeah, you are a member of the ANC, and obviously you uh, grew up in Soweto, uh, in South Africa, during apartheid, and you took part in the struggle against apartheid. So you've got some very interesting stories about that struggle, and that's obviously why we brought you in today. So, so thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, first thing, I guess, is talk about... Uh, yourself, um, when did you start to get involved in politics? Uh, well, look, I was born in 1977, a year after the uh, 76 uprising. And unfortunately, when you are born at the time when I was born, you become the child of the struggle unknowingly until you start asking questions, trying to understand what is happening in the environment. Mm. And because when you are a child, you are innocent. It is neither here nor there uh, whether or not um, you are involved. Uh, your parents are experiencing apartheid. Your grandparents are experiencing apartheid. Everyone in the township is experiencing apartheid. For instance, there was no electricity for a number of households that could not afford until trenches started being dug in 1983 and electricity started working uh, in late 1984. And that electricity that was working became both a symbol of triumph uh, of uh, the apartheid uh, apparatus as well as uh, a signal of oppression which is why many people started boycotting it. So it mm. was not necessarily um, whether or not you wanted to be involved. Mm. It was when are you going to be involved? Mm. Because once you grow up in an environment where um, the soldiers are running all over your streets, mm. they are in your uh, police camps, I mean, police stations, they are at your stores where you go and buy, uh, where your parents go send you to buy. They are at the football grounds where you play. Mm -hmm. They are in your schools. Um, in primary schools, they did not make it their business to enter into the premises. But at high schools, as soon as you hit high school, you must know that from time to time, the soldiers will come into your school and look for Sainova. So, you, yeah. you either... For what, sorry? is a is an activist. Ah, uh, ah. We, we used to say Sianyova. Sianyova means we are rebelling. Uh, we are not under your system. Ah. Um, and once you are a Sianyova, you are involved in a rebellion. Through sticks and stones, whatever that is available near you. Uh, Molotov cocktail. Hmm. One second there, Fred. Sorry, the microphone is making a bit of a noise there. Uh, is it your mic? Just try again. I'm saying through sticks and stones. Ah, 
you you were involved. So we we did not make a choice knowingly. Ah. Ah. Uh, I see. The environment uh, was a symbol of children in the struggle. Uh-huh. And the choice that we had to make was that do we get involved or do we avoid? Uh-huh. And unfortunately, not everybody was invited to be involved. That's not how it worked. Mm. There would have been people who understood what was happening, who were in the underground structures of the ANC, mm. uh, who would see the interest that you have. And they would start cultivating it until you were at the right age where they could say, okay, do this, do that. Mm. So were you a, were you a Soyanova so, so in, in high school? W- was I? Were you a Soyanova so in, in high school? Were you an activist? And, and, and if you were, I mean, how, did, how, does, how does one become an activist? Or how did, did people become activists? Okay. I mean, was it like now, you'd go to a particular house? and speak to a particular person and, and everyone knew? How did that work? Okay, now, because already the environment is smoke and flames, so I'm saying, because the environment was smoke and flames, there were running people all over the streets each day. Uh, there were gangsters who were fighting with uh, activists and comrades who also were sponsored by the apartheid uh, regime just to disturb the momentum of the struggle. So there was an incident that happened to me. You see, my grandmother used to gamble numbers. It's called Fafi. So she used to gamble Fafi. Uh, In the township language, they would say Mochaina or Umshaina in Zulu. That's where they have a checklist of numbers, 1 to 36. They pick numbers. They place... um, a fee on the number or a value on the number. So uh, 20 cents would bring you 520, mm. which at the time, uh, you, if you bought the meat for five friends, mm. you could feed a family. We used to stay more than 10. So at home, we were 16. 16 at home? Yeah, one home, four room house. Other Jeez. people were sleeping in the kitchen. Uh, others in one bedroom others in the dining room. We were sleeping in the dining room as a family. My father, my mother, uh, uh, my brother and me. We were four at the time before my little sister was born. So we were sleeping there as a family. Mm. After my little sister was born, um, we were sleeping there as uh, the five of us and the rest of the people would share the rest of the house. Now, when I say a room, I mean a three by three. Three by three. Yeah, three by three. Five of us were sleeping there. As a family. And you can't put a bedroom, a a bed there. You Mm. have a sleeper couch because during the day, it's where people come and sit. It's a sitting room, come dining room. Mm. At night, we shift chairs around and mm-hmm. then were able to sleep. Mm-hmm. So I would have been sent to the store. Uh, it was a Saturday, sometime in 1984. And there happened to be a funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
just uh, where I was passing. And you had a lot of people there who were singing uh, struggle songs. Mm. Um, and then, uh, well, because the environment always you had the, the soldiers moving around, they then uh, shot a tear gas. Mm. And the canister just fell about a meter from where I was. So I was just lucky that it didn't fall, it didn't hit me or fall on me, but just a meter from where I was, that is where it fell. Mm. So some comrades uh, picked me up, two of them. Uh, they jumped a few fences with me. You collapsed? The other one, you, you passed no, out or, you, or the gas, the gas incapacitated I, you? No, it had not necessarily um, um, spread as quickly, but by the time it fell there, I was already uh, uh, with the hand on my eyes, uh, trying to, because my eyes had, had been affected. Uh, so, you know, when you are a child, you would use a hand uh, to uh, try and uh, rub off. Yeah. Um, but then it can't work. So these comrades picked me up. They ran with me. Mm. And they were running away as well. But they they thought they couldn't leave me there. Mm. Uh, one of them picked up the meat that I'd got at, bought at the store because uh, my grandparents, my grandmother had said I must buy. Mm. And they scaled a few fences. Mm. And then where I was is zone one. When I pass... I go down that street. It's mm -hmm. zone seven. That's our street. Mm -hmm. uh, it was about 600 meters from my house. Mm. No, not even 600 meters. Maybe one kilometer. Okay. 500, 500. Yeah, maybe a kilometer. Mm. So they scaled a few fences. They jumped into zone two went to a house, uh, opened the tap, and they were washing my face and eyes. Uh, and then they tore off, somebody tore off their T-shirt and then put water on it and then they put on my mouth. Mm. And then that's when they asked me after that, where do you stay? I said, zone seven. They said, okay, we will uh, go towards where you are staying. Just when you can identify that you are near a home, tell us, so that we leave you and we go. Mm. So I told them um, when I was near a home, mm -hmm. and then they ran away, I went to my house. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were worried at home, where am I, and so on, because uh, mm -hmm. they knew that some commotion had happened, and in fact my father had gone out to go and look for me. Um, but when he went back home, after two hours or so, they told him, no, I had come back. Of course, I was affected by the tear gas. I was <laughs> crying, so I was asleep. <laughs> and that's when it became an eye-opener. <laughs> At 1984, I'm only seven years old. <laughs> but I'm now aware that as I go and... Uh, do the menial tasks that are assigned by my parents, grandparents, uncles, and so on. Mm. I must be aware of uh, 
the police, the soldiers, the comrades, and so on. Mm. And that sparked my curiosity, but what was the problem? Mm. Why is it that every day, and you know child curiosity is child curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, apartheid had bent all discussions about apartheid, all literature about apartheid. People were uh, made to be fearful and to fear talking mm. about apartheid. You mm. couldn't talk about Mandela, you couldn't talk about Oliver Tambo. Mm. Um, so, so then we, we had to start asking because there were people who were involved that we knew. Uh, some of them, even if they didn't tell, but after some time following things around in the township, you could tell that so-and-so was in this thing. Mm. Okay. So one of, one of them was opposite my, my grandparents' house. So I used to hang out with him. Mm -hmm. uh, so he would tell me slowly and slowly about what was the problem with the struggle later on when one of his friends came who was from diagonal opposite my grandparents' home. Mm -hmm. um, they were friends, so they used to go together to these things. Until I, I got to um, know uh, about five, six of them who were involved who would hang out together. Mm. And I learned that um, then when you are three, you are in a cell. When mm. you are six, you are in your unit. But mm. a six means you have a unit commander, seven, you have a unit commissar. Mm. Um, and then when you are a, a cell or a unit, then the unit is assigned uh, tasks mm. uh, to um, complete in order mm. to spread the word, in order to reinforce mm. the struggle. Mm. So that's how we became involved mm. unaware because mm. you would have been hanging out with a person who's trying to explain to you why were you tear gassed. Mm. What? Because at home you can't have that conversation. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. One day when you corner them, that's when they explain to you in anger. Um, and you must know you will receive a hiding if you continue insisting. So we never used to raise these things at home and we never made them aware. Even when we started knowing or becoming involved, they mm. would pick up uh, that, no, this one was running away because they were soldiers and so on. But mm. we became uh, activists as children and we, we held a lot of secrets. Mm. So... At 10 years was when I, I started being given responsibility. I could sneak into certain houses, uh, deliver one parcel or the other. I didn't know what was in the parcels. There was right. a strange way of, picky, of, of speaking at the time. <laughs> they, they give you a parcel and you are given this parcel by your granny and then she says to you, it's a Maisa Deng SE. <laughs> Wait, so just just yeah. for just for the non-Africans uh, listeners, what what does that mean? Dengas is a parcel. Uh -huh. It doesn't have a name. You don't know what's in the parcel, and you can't ask your grandmother what's uh -huh. in there. Uh -huh. She uh -huh. may not know as well. Okay. And you are taking it to another grandmother. Uh, when you arrive at the grandmother with the 
uh, Denges. Mm -hmm. She calls the child in the house. Uh, Lerato. That's the name of the child. Takwan, mm -hmm. please come here. Mm -hmm. And what, what she says thereafter, it's only her and Lerato who knows. Tsapasele. Mm -hmm. What's name? So take this parcel mm. and put it on top of the what you call that is next to a whatever you find there. It's only her who knows. Okay. Right? So that's that's how we became involved. We became involved through child curiosity uh -huh. because one incident that happened to us. Yeah. Uh, you, you didn't plan to be involved in that thing. You only knew that, okay, you have soldiers. When you go out of your house and go to the street, you have soldiers. And sometimes um, they would come out of the street and go to your house and start looking for Sainov. Um, so you like it or not, yeah. you were involved. Right. And you just mentioned yeah. something there um, <clears throat> that you, you couldn't really talk about the struggle. You couldn't talk about why apartheid was this or why apartheid was that. At home, you'd get a hiding. But also, you did have grandmothers who are helping with uh, the couriering of parcels, like you just explained now. Um, so I, I guess some some parents were obviously, uh, you know, supporting the, the struggle, but others were, you know, wanting to just keep their head down and stay out of trouble. Well, many people wanted to keep their head down. Um, many people wanted to keep their head down because being involved was a lot of things that were very bad. Mm. Uh, it was torture. You would be killed. Um, you would be disappeared into thin air. Mm. Mm. You would be forced to work for the system and your, your parents and siblings would be threatened. So mm. many of them did not necessarily want to bring that kind of danger uh, mm. to their families. But in their own right, they were involved through those manual tasks. Uh, they, they would make donations uh, as uh, the whole township mm. for representations to be made, uh, which were equivalent to supporting the struggle, even though they wouldn't declare. Mm. Um, they would be curing all of those small parcels. Mm -hmm. um, they would be harboring comrades. You know, you could run into any house mm -hmm. and, and you wouldn't be arrested because the people there would hide you. Okay. I see. I see. I mean, I was going to ask you, uh, how, how did, you know, orders arrive for, for the leadership? Because uh, maybe not everyone knows, the ANC obviously was a banned organization at this time. Uh, you know, as you've mentioned already, talking about apartheid was was banned. There was heavy state repression uh, from the police and the soldiers. So I think you've already answered this question, that in the township, in Soweto, uh, you had this parcel system, this courier system, uh, and it was all very, uh, very strict. You know, no one knew what was in the parcel. So this is how leadership commanded the cells and commanded the um, the units? Well, there were various ways. Um, many people who were um, leading 
in the underground movement were linked to many people through those cells and uh, and units. Mm. Um, and in the cells and units, there were specific things. For instance, one of the tasks that I performed was to pick up a box um, when there was a national stairway or a consumer boycott. Mm. And these things used to happen on commemorative days. So I would pick up a box. I don't know what is in the box, but I know that I have to put that box at the um, at the corner of some streets when buses come back from work with uh, workers uh, who were our mothers, fathers and uncles in the township. Uh, that box would have exploded and you would have had many papers um, there at the bus stop. So it was not uh, a task that I knew I was performing. Just to clarify, sorry. You said that the box would would would, would explode with well, not 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 a bomb, but it would give it would be full of uh, like pamphlets and literature. Yes, okay. pamphlets and literature would be strewn all over okay. the floor. Gotcha. Um, and when people get off their buses, they are able to pick up these papers mm. that mm. are and that's how the messages would go. Sometimes um, at three o'clock in the morning. Before the trains arrive, comrades would have been able to put down pamphlets uh, there mm. um, at strategic areas where they would also explode and people would get the messages. They go to work on the train. Uh, mm. They discuss these things. Mm. Um, as they come back from work, um, they would have had to meet with their uh, trade union organizers or shop floor, uh, shop stewards mm. who... Uh, would also explain because that's how the underground uh, mm. movement ran. This is mm. what uh, you should understand about the struggle that mm. in a particular era from 1979 to 1985 where you had COSAS, you also had an explosion of uh, activism. Mm. So so you, you had COSAS from 1979. What's a COSAS? So is that a trade union? It's Congress of South African Students. You see the 76 uprising people. Many of them ran out to exile. But when they arrived in exile, some of them were retrained uh, in the focus of the struggle because they would have done this thing as part of the underground movement that was intensified from 1973-74, where teachers were recruited, some working people in the communities, uh, and the reverends. The 1969 prison trial people, when they won the case of the prison trial, they were able to uh, advance their development of the underground mm. of the ANC. So they were able to pick up in the in the early 70s uh, people who would be able to link them up with school children who were a bit clever, who could be able to do work. And that's when Amos Masondo and them, uh, Mafimuro and them, uh, Ohara Diseko, Malimukwena, Obrimukwena, and other people, uh, some of them were teachers, other students, began mm. to move around. You know, Ten um, mm. they began to move around uh, mm. and started uh, laying their ground and foundation to build mm. and intensify the struggle through the educated people and the working people. Mm. This was the responsibility carried out by, um, there was a unit that Sidney Fumadi used to belong to. 
uh, Samson Doe and them. Mm-hmm. It was a very effective unit. So they had taught many people, uh, at least around Soviet and Midlands, about underground involvement mm-hmm. in the struggle. Mm-hmm. And uh, Midlands became a microcosm of um, a very lethal weapon of struggle against apartheid. Because many of the people there could operate in secret. Uh, um, they were the they, they like they could operate in the struggle, and unless you knew they were, they wouldn't tell you. And how would you know they were? So the underground movement functioned like that. A few people will meet, yeah. and then they uh, spread information through units. The units through the cells. <laughs> the cells will take the information down at street level. <laughs> there was street level organization. And before you know it, uh, one message that um, came from Lusaka via Radio Freedom or via in 24 hours would literally be on the streets of Soe. Ah, I see, I see, I see. Okay, okay. So, okay. so and it was a very sophisticated thing. You you uh. couldn't, which is why they knew if somebody was a sellout. Mm. Because how information moves, uh, you couldn't be able to cut it off. Or, um, besides cutting it off, arrest it. It moved very quickly. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just on two, two things there, Fred. I just want to go, I, I, I want to go back on something. You said uh, the boxes that you'd place by the bus stops, they would explode with literature. But I mean, would, you, would, there, would, would there literally be a bomb that would blow, a small bomb to blow up the literature like into the air? Is it literally what, how that would happen? Yeah, something like, you know, when you open firecrackers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you would have something so, like that. Okay. It doesn't make noise. Uh, it it's a trigger that opens the box okay. and everything gets cut out. Okay, okay, okay. So like a small small device like that. Okay. And the second yeah. question, um, you said yeah, of course, with information and how it how it, how it spread. Um, could people access radio? Uh, which radio station do you say you mentioned there? And could people listen radio to freedom? Radio freedom. And could they listen to yeah. that in the township, or was it blocked? Well, it, it was blocked, but uh, at certain times at night, um, there were people who were able to access it. I think it was South Wave 1 or South Wave 2. Mm-hmm. Um, at certain times at night, the frequency would be clearer. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they managed to do that, but I know that even my older brother, he would be saying the struggle things that... Uh, uh, were being spoken on radio and we were taught to uh, not to mention that anywhere in the street so he would be shouting Chimulenga, Hondo. Um, so I, I used not to say anything I was very quiet mm. uh, I would be talking about the common things but I became the one who um, started running around uh, with people that I was not supposed to run around with because an incident had happened to me and it made me aware uh, of what was happening in the environment. And from then onwards, yeah. um, because of that awareness of the environment, um, we also became part of the milieu of people who 
we would be found at the wrong places where we were not supposed to be. But um, we became entrenched. Yeah. No one yeah. could. No one could. Um, could remove the pain that we were. The collective pain of the people was felt everywhere, whether you were involved or not. So those of us who uh, had been identified as uh, people that certain messages could be shared with, mm. um, we also grew into the struggle like that until such time we were given uh, these tasks that had got nothing to do. It was like as a child, you are being sent by one of your unannounced uncles because that was also a golden rule in the township. Mm. Every house uh, was your house. Mm. Every mother was your mother. Every granny was your granny. Um, we and, and that's how we survived. Sometimes there was not enough food at your house. Mm. You could go. You could go and chill with one of your friends, mm. uh, and then when they dish out, they dish out for you as well. Mm. Um, you could be sent by your granny to buy bread, and when you eat bread for lunch, you eat with everybody who is with you at the time. So that's how um, we grew up in poverty, severe poverty. Mm. But we we couldn't feel that we were in severe poverty because we shared a collective responsibility of mm. taking care of each other. So that culture also permeated to the struggle. Mm. Mm. Um, uh, and we were taught to manage secrets, secrets from the home, Secrets mm. from the street, uh, secrets about messages that we were being told. So we were not necessarily a secretive society. Mm. But unless the message was meant for you, we were not going to tell you anything. Mm. That's and what we were taught. You were talking about uh, the collective pain. Uh, yeah. Feel the collective pain in the people. Um, I mean... I mean, not most people will, maybe not even know some of the details about what it was actually like living under apartheid. Now, you've already touched on some of it, you know, that the police were in the street all the time, firing tear gas into funerals. Um, but on, on some of the other levels, like uh, if you wanted to travel across uh, to into Joburg or into another part of the city uh, or, or other part of the country, things like that. I mean, what was that experience like for you? The, the other elements of apartheid, going to school and and um yeah you, you know uh, coincidentally we traveled at night um, for some reason i didn't understand why do we like traveling at night because so i'm saying night has problems so we would travel at night now i remember one day we were moving from um orlando west uh, they call it orlando west to Zimshop. Uh, that's my um where my mother grew up. So her father had passed on, so we were going to KZN for a funeral. Mm. And then I was told that uh, we are going to travel by bus. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they ask you how old you are, you are saying, uh, I'm two years old. So I was a bit short, honey. Mm -hmm. And then my brother, uh, how old you are? You are four years old. Uh, but my brother at the time was uh, eight and I was six. Okay. So in a bus, as you travel, you are going to come across roadblocks. 
the area where we were going to to Newcastle, it's uh, more or less three to four hours drive. It took us the whole night by bus. We arrived there. We left here at eight at night. We arrived there at six in the morning. Just too long because there were one too many roadblocks. <laughs> and two, your your. So the reason why our years were shortened is that we were yeah. not going to be asked for permits. Anyone under five years of age will not be asked for a permit. Ah. But but all um, the parents, they had to carry their passes. There was this black book called Pass, mm-hmm. um, which uh, later on became a book called ID because when the laws were relaxed and there were reforms, they turned it into an identity a document, but it was a, a book with pages. <laughs> so... In that pass, there had to be a, an authorization that you could travel, unless it was a funeral. So one document that says it's a funeral is going to be held at such and such a place. Uh, this is the family um, could be produced. So my uncle said arranged that. So traveling during apartheid was exactly that. Mm. You were restricted from reaching certain areas if you were not authorized to go there. And going to a funeral in KZN, it's easy. Mm. Coming back, you have another set of roadblocks meant by other uh, police officers or soldiers who were not there. Uh, remember that the shift when you <laughs> went up, it was uh, from in the evening at 7 or at 6. When you come back, it's after the funeral. Maybe you leave the area at 3 so that by 9, 10, you are in Johannesburg. Mm. You also have another set of roadblocks mm. where you are going to be harassed. Mm. Why had you traveled to uh, this area? Yeah. Uh, why are you coming back today? Uh, your authorization says you must come back tomorrow. So all of those things culminated into the collective pain. Your mm. movements were restricted. You mm. couldn't choose to move from a rural area not having any contact in the township. Mm. Uh, and sometimes you move from a rural area to a township, you didn't have a job. Mm. Uh, if you get caught, you are going to sleep uh, at the prison because you don't have documents and or authorization or a special permit that allows you to be in Johannesburg for 10 days, 30 days, or 100 days whilst you are still looking for a job. Mm. 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 Wow. Okay, okay. And uh, in terms of education uh, and jobs, uh, you said, of course, you know, people looking for jobs, but at the time, there were only, there were certain jobs that were only for certain people, right? Yes, uh, you could work in uh, jobs that were for semi-skilled um, and non-skilled people. Mm-hmm. Um Many women used to work at factory floors where they were garment workers. Mm-hmm. Um, there were certain jobs reserved for colored people and white, uh, uh, colored ladies and white ladies, like being cashiers, mm-hmm. uh, where they had to handle cash, mm-hmm. um, office work, clerical work. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, you know, my father um, went to university. Uh, according to him, he was left with one subject. They were doing subjects at the time. 
a university degree was 10 subjects. I'm not sure per subject how many papers were there. So my father says um, um, he was left with one subject to complete his BA psychology, but he didn't want to do BA psychology. Mm. He wanted to become an architect. Mm. Uh, he used to draw plans and used to build houses. So he was told at the time when he completed matric 1969, he was told that uh, it's for whites only when he wanted to enter university. That was in 1970. He was 21. Mm. He was told that he couldn't become an architect because it's for whites only. So my father went and did BA psychology that he didn't finish. I guess he was bored. He didn't have uh, any passion in it. Mm. But he loved books, you see. He loved books, reading, and all of those things. Mm. 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 Now, it, it's, it's, it's education that he accessed before Bantu education was declared. Mm. Uh, so, when Bantu education was declared, then the curriculum changed. Just, just, just for the people that don't know, Bantu education obviously is the policy of a particular education system for uh, the black majority in under apartheid yes uh, it was only to be accessed by the black majority um, mission schools were stopped uh, private schools that were run by churches were stopped um, so we all had to go and uh, do bank education so even we um, as the children of the first generation that was doing Bantu education, uh, we also became uh, the, um, the learners of Bantu education. Mm. Now, Bantu education taught you everything academic. But there were then vocational schools that uh, people used to go to. They were lucky to have those vocational schools, which... Um, at the time, they were not um, they were not sold to the communities as an alternative education that uh, is advanced for you to be able to work with your hands uh, and uh, make things you can manufacture and do what. So many people who access that education would have been the ones who go to factories. They become garment workers. Others become fitters and tenors. Mm. Um, if you were a mechanic, you would have been taught mechanic, a, me a work uh, based on being a mechanic by your uh, white friend or African friend mm. that you happen to work for as a domestic work. And because they were looking at you with admiration as to how you are such a hard worker. Mm. Um, every time they are fixing their car, you are there, you are picking up this and that, you are helping them to either loosen the screws or tighten them up, they then also take interest to say, but um, if I can teach him to do this thing, it means I can work with him. Mm. So my grandfather would have had that luck mm. where he started working in the kitchen as a domestic worker and then he became a cook for white people and then they taught him mechanics because he was interested in books and mm. he was a hard worker. Mm. My father in turn also because he was interested in books and he was a hard worker. He then uh, taught himself how to draw these plans, um, you know, doing things through trial and error, pretty much what I also picked up from him and I also do that. 
Mm-hmm. Now, it worked for them because they were not necessarily tightened up by Bantu education, which was education meant for blacks only. It was supposed to teach us um, basic numeracy and literacy, uh, not advanced things. And that is why the apartheid government even thought that because it is at the most basic, we can even change everybody to do it in Africans. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, and our, our schools were not like now. Uh, you know the township Midlands where I grew up? Mm. It was not built logically. Um, where they started building, it's now called Zone 4 or Zone 5. Mm-hmm. And it's the train houses. Mm. As more people were coming to Midlands, then they, they had semi-detached houses. Mm-hmm. Two houses on a one big plot, and then you'd put a fence. And then um, the train houses then transformed mm-hmm. um, into single houses for some. They were slightly bigger. Others could even have one extra room. Mm. Now, even the schools in those townships were built illogically, but the one thing that was certain, it was that they had to follow the pattern of the apartheid policy on Bantu education, one, but two, um, they were according to the languages spoken. Mm-hmm. If in an area you are predominantly Zulu, you would be put in a school that teaches Zulu people. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that was for the primary schools. There were only two high schools. There was one called Middlelands High until uh, the 70s. Then other schools started being built, mm-hmm. which became high schools. Uh, mm-hmm. We ended up with nine high schools. Now, in those nine high schools, you can then have separate languages. You you would have two or three languages mm. uh, or four in some instances. So where you had packed the Botswana only, you would now have Botswana, Bateri, maybe the Zulus. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you had packed um, um, the Peris only, you would, oh, you would now have Bateri, uh, Basoto, Shangan, mm. and Venda. So that became a problem for the apartheid system. Mm. Because when they were implementing the policy of separate development, which was also consistent with their ideals of Bantu education, mm. high schools became an area where uh, you could interact and mingle with people who were not from your own area only, who came from other areas, mm. but also who were speaking other languages other than the one you were speaking. So your efforts of doing separate development according to languages uh, would fail there. Mm. But in terms of the urbanism, uh, the urban planning and design, it was catered for. For instance, in the Zone 7 where I'm staying, Mm. you only had the Botswana and the Bapedi. And Mm. the schools that were uh, allocated uh, is the Botswana and the Bapedi schools. Mm. Uh, Some part of Zone 1 had Sutu-speaking people the schools allocated there were mm. of the Basotho. So it's a whole a range of wastage uh, simply to implement apartheid policy of separate development and apartheid policy of Bantu education. So let me see if I'm right. So the, the, um, 
the policy obviously separate development as well as Bantu education. They yeah. had a flaw in this plan. Their plan was to keep uh, clusters of people around a language identity in particular yeah. communities, particularly yeah. in Soweto. And, yeah. and the school was the sort of uh, linchpin of this. The school was there and the primary school was there and that would keep that community around that, that sort of linchpin. But they didn't may perhaps foresee uh, the secondary school and I suppose pair them up in, into sort of their zone, them, zone them in the same manner. So you had mixing in the secondary school. So uh, people that would, would never have met would have been stuck in their sort of their Zulu zone or Bapedi zone or, or Sutu zone. They would have then yeah. become mingling in, in the secondary school. And that was obviously a problem. Yeah. So what, what, what was the logic? Was that obviously a, a divide and conquer logic, but also just the, the general ideology, ideology of apartheid of being about uh, separation, the separate development? It, it, it was the policy of separate development, mm. but it was also a, an extension of a British colonial divide and rule policy, mm. except that the British did not implement it to that detail. Mm. Mm -hmm. So what apartheid uh, policy did was to redefine uh, the policy of race, class, and gender, and then start implementing it uh, to detail. Mm. So these flaws became the weakness for the apartheid government, but they also became a rallying point mm. for communities against the apartheid because um, they, 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 they caused so much antagonism in communities. I mean, we had gangsters in the 80s mm. based on, on languages. Uh, these ones were Shangans, we couldn't mix with them. Others were saying these ones were uh, vendors, we couldn't mix with them. And, and so the underground uh, structures of the ANC worked very hard to undermine and redress that kind of thinking. Mm. Um, so the culmination then became through the Soweto 76 uprising, you had the, the turning point where people were then willing to explode into a rebellion. By 1979, you had people who had been trained in ideology, mass mobilization, mm. uh, underground work, mm. uh, insurrection, you know, uh, general uh, uh, um, activities around guerrilla warfare. Mm. Um, who had now become part of the milieu of society. They mm. went to exile, were infiltrated back into the country. They were then forming formations. So COSAS, mm. as that formation from 1979, mm. became a key instrument in the popularization of the struggle. Many of the um, people who were at high school, who had come out of high school in the early 80s, they went to work in the factories. They became members of the trade unions. And by 1983, um, you then had mass popular uh, mobilization. Mm. Um, and this mass popular mobilization culminated into what uh, um, the formation of the UDF, United Democratic Front, mm. where all these mass democratic uh, organizations that were fighting for freedom then mm. became a united front that uh, was saying apartheid must end and so on. And the same causes by 1985, it had popularized um, 
mass movement and struggle in every township yeah. uh, and village. So yeah. in all townships and rural areas, you would have had um, uh, no activists at some point. Yeah. When COSAS became a key instrument for uh, the involvement of uh, learners in the struggle, in, yeah. in all the villages, uh, you had COSAS. Mm. Um, we used to have a saying, we said uh, every student a COSAS member, because mm. that is how it felt, even though we knew we, knew we were few. Mm. But at the level of uh, mass mobilization and involvement of society, many mm. people uh, were alive to the fact that uh, we had the Congress of South African Students. Mm. Then it was banned in 1985. Mm. And when it became banned, um, Mobilization was no longer only happening at schools. It had entered the townships. It was in the bedrooms, in the kitchens, everywhere. People were now alive to the fact that uh, Oliver Tambo um, is speaking and is leading uh, mm. from the front. Whether or not he's there in the country, but the ANC is alive and well. The people unbanned the ANC because of them being alive to what Cosas was doing. <laughs> so when it was banned, then a formation called SOSCO was formed. Uh, what happened is that COSAS was a national structure, but mm -hmm. when, when it was banned, then local uh, committees of COSAS became structures. So mm -hmm. the, the local sub-region of COSAS in Soweto became um, an organization in its own right called Soweto Student Congress for children who were at high school. Mm. <laughs> Those who had moved from uh, uh, high schools into university began to do work as well. Mm. So you, there is, there is a, a story that uh, when we have time, we can talk about it. Mm. There's an organization that was called Azasu. Mm. Was it Azasu or Azasku? Uh, I will remember. That uh, organization adopted the Freedom Charter mm. and it moved en masse and joined uh, um, the struggle in alliance with the ANC. It joined uh, and became part of the United Democratic Front. Mm. Mm. Uh, mm. COSA structures, all of them, as they were becoming formations, they became part of the United Democratic Front. Yeah. The United Democratic Front, as an organization, did not have membership. Yeah. Okay. It was a popular front mm. for many organizations, whether it's federations or organizations that could join, whether it's churches, mm. so you could join the mm. UDF and stand with uh, the Democratic Front mm. uh, fighting for uh, mm. the freedom of uh, South Africa. Mm. So, I'll make so a note here. Wait, one second, Fred. So, uh, I just want to make sure on something. Are you happy to continue for now, uh, to speak for, 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 for at least another half an hour? Or would you like to, to put us a pause now and we can continue uh, at another episode? Because I'm just conscious of your time, obviously, how long we've been going. Are you, are you fine for time? Yeah, no, I'm fine with time. We can okay. Uh, continue. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. So, yeah, yeah, so um, let me just uh, clarify. So, so, yes, we're talking now about the mass mobilization, about Azasco and, and the students' bodies as well as the, the, the mobilization from within the township, you know, from students now into households, and now things are becoming, uh, you know, consciousness is being achieved in, in the township, in, amongst the people. Um, yes. Yeah. And so now this is obviously now when 
you've already mentioned some political formations. Um, yes. And now with with political consciousness and, and sort of the struggle coming to life, you mentioned gangs and you mentioned these other things. How, how did things start playing out uh, amongst these political formations? And, and what other competing com- uh, political formations were there? I mean, I don't want to jump ahead, but things like the IFP um, and things like uh, the PAC, uh, how did these things start playing out as, as, the, as the struggle intensified? Uh, I, I assume we're talking about 1985 now around this period and forward. Yes. How did things so start when, playing when, when Cossas gets banned, hmm. uh, you now have local formations uh, that are grouping up. So in Alexander, you had the Alexander Student Congress. Hmm. Um, so in Soweto, Soweto Student Congress, in the Val, Val Student Congress. Mm. And then those who go out of school, who are working at trade unions, they become uh, members of trade unions, others become organizers and substitutes. When they come back home, they are in the civic structures. Whether we are mobilizing around rent boycott, consumer boycott, they are there. Um, so that's, that's the mass struggle now happening in full swing. But in most cases, it is pursued from the schools because many of the students and youth are the ones who are now kicking the doors and pushing boundaries. Mm, mm, mm. So that time then brings about the might of the apartheid um, um, government. Mm. Then we start having more and more uh, state of emergencies we start having more and more repressive uh, actions mm. where houses are attacked, comrades are arrested willy-nilly. Um, so we start having deaths of mm. people. And at every death, the significance was that the ANC flag and the flag of the Communist Party would go up in majority. Mm. And it didn't discard the fact that you had the PAC and you had uh, Azapo, uh, they were there in the community. Many of them were involved, but they were not as organized mm. as the underground Congress movement and its structures, which is why many of us, even as we opened our eyes, we were alive to the fact that the people who were organizing around us were ANC people. And mm. that's how we fell to gravitate towards the ANC more than any other organization. And mm. once you were caught by the flu uh, of the time, that influenza virus that catches you of the struggle, uh. it was exciting. Uh, you were looking forward to dying like other young people for something that was worth uh, mm. the price, even though we didn't know what the price was. None of us were promised a job set government. None of us were promised that uh, uh, we could become politicians and uh, uh, be parliamentarians and so none of us. But in all of this, there was method to who was involved. So I'm getting you to that point of how I got involved mm. and how we were able to coordinate everything. There was method to who got involved. So we started receiving the training on the small things. Uh, we would be sneaked into certain meetings just to get a sense of what was being said, although they were short. Um, we started receiving literature. 
Mm. Um, and you must guide it with your life. Because if it was to be found, even if it is one book, you will be in trouble. What kind of books? Well, um, Schaba, you know Schaba. Um, we would receive maybe a copy of the speech by Oliver Tambo, run through a printing like that. Maybe <laughs> you receive an, ex- an excerpt on one page. <laughs> um, and those, those small things gave us um, the courage to now start looking for information. <laughs> start understanding it, start connecting the dots. And mm. this information was carried by comrades. Mm. Uh, so you had to be a good listener and you had to be very patient to listen to the stories. Mm. Uh, so by 1989, mass mobilization had uh, increased by far. Mm. And 1989, um, was it in December? Um, Elias Ntualedi was released, Waltasi Sulu was released, uh, Wilton Mkwai was released. Who was the fourth person that was with them when they were moving around? I don't remember. But um, we would have been able to see them in the township, interact with them, and that is 1989, before Mandela is released. Mm. The release of Mandela was kept a secret. So most of us are now moving from primary school. We are getting into high school. 1990, we get into high school. We are already in the formations. Mm. We know what to listen for, what to listen to, and where to go. Mm. So when we arrive there, we become members of SOSCO since COSAS's end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then on the announcement that uh, uh, COSAS is unbanned and all other organizations, including the NC Youth League and so on, we were already members of SOSCO. We are continuing with organizing, informing students and so on. When the 11th February announcement gets made, Mm. Um, that's when most of us became excited because we could uh, see that freedom was on the horizon. Mm. Uh, the ANC sunburned, but that was the beginning uh, of the dark cast moment mm. we would have ever um, experienced. Just on that one there, Fred, so it, that's when you felt the first time that, that, that victory was going to possibly be on the horizon. Yeah, the first time we saw victory was yeah. when Mandela was uh, released on the 11th of February. Huh. Okay. Remember, um, the announcement was the release of Mandela, the unbanning of political organizations and so on and so on. <laughs> so okay. we, could, we could see freedom, we were excited. But that was the beginning of the darkest phase Mm. Before the freedom. Gotcha. So why was that? Why was that the darkest phase? Why was that worse than the, the 1988 and 1989? Because after uh, Mandela was released, uh, we immediately got into violence, mm. and this violence was visiting our schools. Uh, we were now active in the schools. Mm. Um, we constituted part of the activists. Mm. 
Mm. Um, at least the numbers would have been at the time 30 or 40 or so, uh, which was a good number out of the 1,400 students that you had. You had an immediate captive audience to organize, even though you were only 40 or 50. Mm. But in the 40 or 50, those who were really involved would have been 10 or 12. Mm. Um, so, so even at that time, you are not going to give information to just anyone. You are not going to show up for just any meeting. And that's where some of us, the experience that we would have had of um, taking parcels from one area to the other, uh, how we spoke to people, it, it then helped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because, because you would be with four friends, we were encouraged to have friends who were not involved in these things, so that even if they were to be asked, they knew nothing. And mm. it was true that they knew nothing. Mm. Mm. But it means you had to carry a lot of pain if you were in pain. You had mm. to carry a lot of courage if you had courage. If you were excited, you'd be excited alone. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because so you could, you could yeah, not yeah. risk putting people into danger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, you said the, the, the violence started at this point. This is the darkest phase. And I mean, was yeah. it only violence from the, only from the state, only from the, the police and the, the army? Now, this is how I'm going to explain it. In the overt mess, or rather in the messages of uh, the apartheid government, um, they were trying to negotiate for peace. But the townships were burning because then you had state-sponsored violence through the police and the soldiers who were arming people who were staying in the hostels. Mm. And these people who were staying in the hostels, remember hostels were built in such a way that they were isolated from the community. Mm. And so the hostels were what, for, for migrant young men or what, what kind of characters? My, migrant workers, most of them single sex hostels, mm. uh, migrant workers, they were not allowed to stay there with women and children. Um, and so many of them um, stayed in those hostels. Most of them did not come to the townships. They had been an isolated life. And in this isolated life, they became um, a ticking time bomb. They could be used uh, by the apartheid government uh, at their will to destabilize and cause instability. They had done that. Uh, in one hostel next to Midlands, there, um, sometime in the late 70s, and then early in 1984, they had done that. And then in 1990, it became an explosion. Mm. Uh, everywhere where there was a hostel in the township, you were in imminent danger. They were running battles every day. Um, so, they could so, come in. What kind of orders would so? You know, the, the, I suppose it'd be an undercover agent from the state, whether it's the police or the, or the security service or the, the intelligence, would go uh, and deliver a message to some people in the hostel, give them money, give them weapons, and then tell them to go and, and kill what they, what they thought were known ANC or struggle uh, activists? How, how would it, it work? It pretty much worked like that. 
no one would want me to, but it pretty much worked like that. Mm-hmm. You had a situation where uh, people would invoke the third force, but the third force operated the same way as they did in the 80s when they were arming people to become gangsters. Even in the early 90s, mm-hmm. they still continued to arm youngsters, uh, give them money, um, and then avoid certain crimes that they were doing. Uh, just for them to consolidate uh, their spirit and strength and then send these people after comrades. Mm. So so it's it's a similar strategy that would be used even uh, with uh, our fathers who stayed in the hostels, our uncles who stayed in the hostels. And then the ANC then had to uh, denounce uh, the Amstragi, but it had also the responsibility to silently and quietly uh, train self-defense units. Mm. Um, and these self-defense units became a problem because some of them were people really who were angry about the, their uh, community members who were killed, mm. who were in it for revenge. But you also had some of us who were members of uh, SOSCO who had re-established COSAS, re-established the ANC Youth League, who were really trained about the direction of the struggle, mm. uh, who were also angry, and who had, uh, from time to time, would all receive, uh, those who were in the forefront would receive one training or the other about the uh, guerrilla warfare and or what we used to call crash courses, just mm. for you to be aware, in case you are in danger and you have to uh, pick up a gun and return fire. This is how a gun looks like. Uh, this is how uh, you put in ammunition uh, that we call bullets. And this is how you um, check the size of the ammunition, whether it is compatible to the chamber of the firearm that you carry. Mm. Um, this is how you shoot. This is how you look for a target. Um, and that would have been done after extensive political education mm. uh, had been given to you because... Um, it may be that there is a violent situation, but the ANC is not responsible for training thugs. Mm. Uh, and it was not the policy of the ANC to train children anyway. Mm. But because children are being attacked, those uh, comrades who were leading MK underground structures mm. um, would uh, provide these uh, small lessons, small crash courses, so that you are aware, even when you are being fired at how to make a run for it, how mm. to save other people from danger and so on. So mm. those things were then given to, were lessons that were given to us uh, in small groups. Uh, they were undeclared. Mm. And many of us received those lessons. Mm. Mm. Um, some of the lessons were more formal than the others. For instance, propaganda in media. Yeah. How do, how do you use the information by the apartheid government uh, to um, send it back at them because they were right. doing the same thing. Right. How do you ensure that um, the information that you want to put out there is recognized by the people that you are putting it out to? And those things were done on songs. The era of the comrades and the toy toy had begun. Toy toy happens everywhere, it happens anywhere. It's to keep the morale very high. It sort of says through this part
power, we can do it. We sing a song as a determined nation. And that song contains anger, it contains also determination to win. Mm -hmm. You know, you would hear us singing a song. So that is the rendition you are listening to. <laughs> but then but then the message comes out. What on Zoom Shaina? Oh, okay, so uh, there's a Fafi car moving around. What is it saying? What are the numbers? Yakipa <laughs> in if mission. So this car moves around, you have a unit <coughs> of people who must hit the target for tracker worker. You said the what, sorry? I'm saying this car uh, is uh, the message from the army camp <coughs> about the mission that is supposed to be done. So we also had people who were uh, planning local missions would be able through songs to deliver the messages. Really? To what was the message? Yes. So, 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 uh, so this is so. Would this be at a, at a protest? So, uh, I mean, listeners might not, might not be familiar with this, but the toy toy is is, is obviously a, a, a fundamental part. Yeah, of, the, of this would be toy. This would be toy toy. So, explain to us what what, uh, what toy toy is, and then also. Um, just to clarify, so they would be singing those songs at the protest, and that's how you would identify a particular vehicle or in past information to say there's a particular yes. vehicle coming down the street with 20 guys in it. Uh, no, that, uh, that particular vehicle, it's the unit that's going to work. So when we say vehicle, those who are not part of what we are doing will look for a vehicle, but we know it's a unit. Okay. It may have arrived where it is supposed to go. But immediately after the target is hit, we know what to say to people. Right, right. So just explain to to, uh, to, to listeners what 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 toy toy is. Yeah. yeah. So toy 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 is um it's a chant that the ANC um came across when it was um somewhere in the sixties where mm -hmm. they had an alliance with the zebra forces and they were training together in the camps. Mm. And Toi Toi uh, is a chant that uh, one unites uh, those who are um, fighting for the same cause. But two, it can be used as a mobilization tool, mm. either for action or for resistance. Mm. 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 So there are various songs in Toi Toi. Um, freedom songs have always been there, but Toi Toi is a particular a type of singing that yeah. you were even trained in the army camps of Nkonto Sizu to do. Mm. Um, because it's an effective weapon. For instance, uh, people hear people shouting, Mandel Uzobu, Heu, Uzobu, Heu. You know that Heu mm. is a resemblance of the barking of the dog. Mm. Mm. Right? Mm. So as as people, different people uh, are doing that, ew, ew. when you are in the valley or moving through a very big uh, uh, area, mm. trees, uh, dangerous animals, 
the most uh, dangerous animal that other animals would be alive to it's the wild dog it hunts in packs mm. and there are no uh, wild animals that want to be caught up uh, with the wild dogs mm. so this uh, comrades would do that chant as they were crossing the borders to resemble the wild dogs mm. Mm -hmm. So even if you have the soldiers there who are watching over the stray people who must not go over the borders, they too would not want to be uh, caught up with the wild dogs. So what, I'm, what am I saying? I'm saying all of these instruments that we were using as part of the struggle, there was method to that madness. Mm -hmm. And until you were involved to a particular level, you wouldn't understand the method to the madness. Mm. 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 So that is what basically we were taught as the basics. Mm. Uh, the, small in, the small tasks, the involvement in one or two things, and it culminated into the national actions that everybody was seeing, whether it was a national strike by Kosatu, mm. whether it was a, a, a rent boycott by the civic organizations, Mm. Uh, all of those things uh, were from the same pot that was driven by the underground structures of the ENC. Mm. And even um, the PAC and ASAPO would uh, at times join the campaigns that <clears throat> the ANC was doing mm. um, because they were, they were very popular, they were massive. Mm. Uh, IFP starts at the point of uh, the violence mm. in the 90s. That is also when they declare that they are the IFP. Before then, the IFP was uh, for one of the formations that the ANC had encouraged. It uh. was called the IYY. One second. And the one second, Fred. So, hold on, I'm just going to... And that is it for this episode of the Marxist Think Tank. Catch us every other week here on SoundCloud. To allow us for our reporting and our content to remain independent, please consider donating to our Patreon and becoming a voting member in the link down below in the description. If you have a news tip or would like to talk to us, please email admin at marxistthinktank.org. Our editor is Sean Sanchez. News writer and producer is Reggie Truman. And I'm Oscar Bastille. Thank you for listening.